are listening to The Book Judge, a podcast about books that you should read if you're interested in business. I'm your host, Conrad Chua. This is a curated reading list to give you a better grip on how to approach the complex issues that businesses face. I would love to hear from you on what you like about the show so far, things like what else I should do. The best way to do that is to leave a review on the podcast player that you're using, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Amazon Music. I'll feature your comments on future episodes. Now, on to this episode. I'm guessing, no, I'm hoping, that if you're listening to this show, you're not planning on a career that features embezzlement, Ponzi schemes, or fraud. And yet, with disturbing regularity, we see top executives and business leaders get convicted for white-collar crime. And the bios of these criminals, they read like CVs that all of us want. Many graduated from top universities, went to elite business schools, led huge companies, and some even won awards like CFO of the Year, usually just months before being indicted. Are these people just evil and we can reassure ourselves that no, we're not like that? What led them to commit their crimes? How clear is it that these were crimes? Eugene Saltis looks at all this in his book, conveniently titled, Why They Do It. Saltis is a professor at Harvard Business School who looks at corporate fraud and misconduct. His book contains a fascinating mix of quantitative data and observations from his own conversations with convicted white-collar criminals, including the hugely notorious Bernie Madoff and Sir Alan Stanford. What I love about his approach is that he made me re-examine all my preconceptions about white-collar crime. And while I'm still sure Madoff and Stanford are criminals, I'm just not so sure I know where to draw the line between criminal activity and acceptable business practices. It always struck me as strange that while there's no shortage of criminals prosecuted for offences such as theft, robbery and murder, there's so few who are prosecuted for white-collar crimes. In fact, white-collar crime was not even recognised as a crime until the mid-20th century. Before then, there was a perception, at least in the United States, that business leaders and executives are upright citizens who contribute a significant amount of economic activity and shouldn't be put in the same class as petty criminals. Saltis goes through and refutes different explanations that people have made about why white-collar criminals do the things they do. For example, there's the born criminal argument. You can spot this argument if you hear a white-collar criminal being described as a bad apple. Basically, that it, it's in that individual's nature to cheat, and the rest of the organization, they're just fine. This begs the question whether punishing someone for something they can't control is just. And it also does not square with how many of these criminals operated. If anything, these criminals had immense self-control to carry out their fraud and deception. Studies have also shown that moral behavior is more complex than we thought. It's not enough to know what is right and wrong. You also have to recognize the situation you're in spot that there is a moral problem, figure out what to do, and then establish your own intent to do something about it. Dropping the ball in any one of these steps can mean engaging in immoral activity. Saltis gave a great example of how this translated into a tax avoidance scandal involving KPMG, which you should definitely read in the book. There's also the argument that 
lying or exaggeration, it's just part of doing business. I mean, what's the difference between an entrepreneur pitching a hockey stick curve of expected profits based on nothing but a prototype to VCs and a trader who's making huge trades in the slim hope that his trades will earn enough money to cover his previous losses? And he covers those losses, all, all, all these trades to his superiors. What's the difference, really? Or when we credit Steve Jobs for having this truth distortion field and assume consumers are rational enough to figure things out for themselves. Saltis had conversations with two notorious fraudsters, Bernie Madoff and Alan Stanford. Both of them felt no remorse for their actions. They pointed out that all the Wall Street banks were engaging in some kind of subterfuge by passing off complex products to other financial institutions products that they didn't even understand. And yet, no executive in those banks were prosecuted after the 2008 financial crisis. Why was caveat emptor used for those products and not the fraudulent ones that Madoff and Stanford sold to sophisticated investors who should have done the checks? Now, I still think Madoff and Stanford are guilty. But as I said, Soltis really made me re-examine my own beliefs about corporate crime particularly about the people who aren't prosecuted. Think about it. Why is it so difficult to prosecute white-collar crime when everyone recognizes there's something wrong with corporate practices? And when you think about the number of prosecutions brought against lower-income criminals for theft, burglary, assault, it's easy to think that only the lower classes engage in crime. This is the part of the podcast where I place the spotlight on one part of the book that you can use immediately in your business or in an interview or just to impress your business school friends. I call this the Did You Know section. Accounting is not the most popular class in business schools. Most MBAs I meet don't think of it as the route to the careers they want. But Saltis shows that accounting to meet analyst expectations is the prime driver of unintended organizational behaviors. The most damning data showed that the far more companies reporting small profits compared to those reporting small losses. To get those small profits, companies likely had to manage their earnings in ways that could be illegal. Soltis had the example of a listed housing developer whose CFO was convicted of fraudulent reporting. Now, nothing strange here, but get this. The CFO was prosecuted because he produced numbers that under not overestimated earnings. Why would anyone do that? Well, the company was doing so well, it would have exceeded analyst expectations for that quarter. This set up concerns within the company that analysts would revise their expectations upwards for subsequent quarters. And these are, would be expectations that the company would find difficult to meet. Also, there was the thought that exceeding expectations would imply the company's leadership did not have a good grip on the business. The other interesting aspect to this case is that the internal adjustments that the CFO made were entirely reasonable. It all had to do with estimating the value of their land reserves, which could be reasonably valued within a huge range. The CFO, on the direction of the CEO, chose the most conservative estimation to drive down their earnings when it suited them. But the thing is, 
there was a reasonable basis for that estimate. It just wasn't the most representative estimate. And the estimates were chosen purely by a desire to distort the accounting. Another case that stood out was of Symbol, an early manufacturer of those barcode scanners you see in every supermarket checkout. Under pressure to meet ever-increasing revenue targets, they introduced aggressive um, stock rotation in air quotes. This is where they shipped product to resellers to put on their warehouses or shelves, and resellers returned unsold product to them. Now, the reseller did not pay for any product that was returned because it wasn't sold. Now, the catch was Symbol recognized revenue every time product left their warehouses, whether or not it was returned. There were other practices that Symbol used, but the bottom line is that management was under huge pressure to meet Wall Street expectations. So they used existing practices with resellers, which all started off completely legitimate, but expanded them to the point where it was all just fraudulent. I don't have the data, but I do wonder if an analyst could have spotted this by comparing Symbol's revenue statements with their cash flow. Anyway, I hope this is sufficient warning to you not to go to sleep in your accounting class when the lecturer talks about revenue recognition. By keeping an open mind when interviewing these convicted white-collar criminals, Saltis manages to piece together how and why they started on a slippery path to jail. I have to admit that sometimes I wondered if he was too sympathetic to some of them, but his approach does bring home the point that any one of us could make the same choices, no matter how moral we think we are. Saltis has some ideas how we can stop ourselves when confronted with these choices. First, you need to be careful when using intuition to make a decision. There's this assumption in business that people make rational decisions, and we see that also in business cases, where all the heat of the moment can be extracted away and you're just left with data. Data that you can draw up a list of pros and cons. But life isn't like that. And the criminals in this book, even the most rational ones, did not think in this way when they made that first flawed decision. They relied on intuition. So this is like the fast versus slow thinking that many of you are familiar with from Daniel Kahneman's work. The second point is to get diverse opinions when making decisions. This is akin to having your business school debate openly about the decision you're about to make. Too often, we surround ourselves with people who agree with us and who reinforce our own blind spots when we make decisions. Hopefully, you can find someone in your professional circle whom you can turn to, who can stop you and show that there is a moral dimension to your decision that you've ignored. This is critical because for many of the executives in this book, they were under so much pressure to keep their companies going, they did not see the moral aspect of their decisions. And they subsequently just rationalized what they did. Saltis's last point, I think, is the most powerful one. This is that we need to stop thinking we'll never do the things that criminals do, that we're better than them. Because none of the executives he interviewed thought they would be morally weak to commit a crime. That hubris blinded them to the fact that 
when any of us are presented with the situations that they were in, we can't say for sure we won't cross that line. That's all for this episode of The Book Judge. If you like what you hear, I want to ask one favor. Tell one other person about the show and encourage them to listen. You can subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And again, um, leave a review or rating for the podcast player that you use. It helps others discover the show. And also after the previous episode on digital minimalism, um, as a way to get ahead in your career, I won't be checking Twitter and Instagram so often. So leaving a review will be your best way to pass comments about the show to me. Till next time, this is your book judge, Conrad Chua.